Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the analysis.news. Please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. President Biden's stimulus package has received strong support from some unexpected places, at least from people who only a year or two ago would have been aghast at a $1.9 trillion size of the package. New York Times conservative columnist David Brooks, who is very close to the family that owns Walmart, the people that own Facebook, and a bunch of other billionaires, as revealed by a recent scandal about the money Brooks received for his foundation, which was not disclosed by the New York Times, so his readers would know that when Brooks was writing about issues that concerned his donors, anyway, that's another issue, Brooks is an old-school anti-Trump Republican who's mostly been on the austerity bandwagon, and he wrote a piece recently in The Times calling Biden a, quote, transformative president and gave the stimulus package a rave review. In an article Paul Heidemann wrote in Jacobin magazine, he says, quote, but what has distinguished Biden more than anything is his total disregard for the deficit fear-mongering that ruled both the Clinton and Obama administrations, while the Biden of the 1990s backed a, quote, balanced budget amendment to the Constitution, the Biden of 2020 is saying, and quite rightly, that now is not the time to worry about deficits. Compare that with Barack Obama, who was pledging to slash deficits even as unemployment soared in the early months of his presidency. That was Paul Heidemann and Jacobin. The progressive... The Daily Poster reports that these measures are expected to increase incomes of the poorest 20% of Americans by an average of 33%, while the poorest 60% could see their incomes increase by an average of 11%, according to estimates from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. One estimate suggests that the legislation will slash child poverty in half. The Daily Poster also writes that, quote, New York Magazine has aggregated other outlets reporting on additional important benefits of the bill, including more than one million unionized workers who were poised to lose their pensions will now receive 100% of their promised retirement benefits for at least the next 30 years. America's indigenous communities will receive $31.2 billion in aid, the largest investment the federal government has ever made in the country's native people. Black farmers will receive $5 billion recompense for a century of discrimination and dispossession, a miniature reparation that will have huge consequences for individual African-American agriculturalists, many of whom will escape from debt and retain their land as a direct result of the legislation. America's child care centers will not go into bankruptcy en masse thanks to $39 billion investment in the nation's care infrastructure. Virtually all states and municipalities in America will exit the pandemic in better fiscal health than pre-COVID, which is to say a great many of layoffs of public employees and cutbacks in public services will be averted. Uh, so I haven't had a chance to look into the detail of all of these uh, reports, um, but even if half of all this is true, it's probably more than anybody expected of the Biden administration. So just what pushed Biden in this direction? What happened with the terror of the deficit demons? Is Biden boldly defying corporate elites? 
or is a massive stimulus just what they want? Now joining us to discuss all of this is Paul Heidemann. He's a writer and teacher in Brooklyn, writes for Jacobin Magazine, and is the editor of Class Struggle and the Color Line, American Socialism and the Race Question, 1900 to 1930. Thanks very much for joining me, Paul. Thanks for having me on, Paul. So, you know, some progressives are kind of claiming credit for this, that the progressive sections of the Democratic Party, Sanders' strength, uh, the, certainly in the House, the, the, the size of the progressive, uh, re, what I call left progressive, not the progressive caucus, but the left progressive caucus. It, it's got a little more clout. Um, and, and, you know, they, they're taking a certain amount of credit for, for this. Certainly there were, were, in fact, some negotiations between Sanders and Biden before the inauguration and working out some of the platform, I should say, during the election campaign. I mean, how much do you think this has to do with, you know, increased strength of the progressive section of the party uh, or people like David Brooks, who represents big money, big capital, uh, and there's just a, a bit of a weird convergence of interest here, at least for a moment. Yeah, I think I think there's three processes that you have to understand to understand why a, uh, a relief bill that is twice as large as a percentage of GDP as Obama's relief bill was able to be passed um, so quickly and, and a bill that contains um, some really progressive pieces of policy. I think first... Um, there is the, the strength of, of the progressive left wing of the Democratic Party, like Sanders in the Senate, AOC in the House and, and their colleagues. Um, I think that's absolutely a part of it and, and that they've been able to, to exert some pressure um, and to, to win some prizes as a result of their, their increasing strength in the party. But I think that their ability to do so is also contingent on these two other processes. And they are first... Um, a, a kind of recomposition of the common sense within the Democratic Party on um, both kind of thinking of the macroeconomic uh, thinking about the deficit and the place of large-scale stimulus spending, as well as um, a, a, a real reevaluation of the value of kind of bipartisanship as an independent good, which I think Obama was very committed to and which I think the Democratic Party today has finally learned that it's actually not worth very much um, and that they can do quite a bit without it. Yeah, I should say, you know, I mentioned David Brooks in the beginning. Uh, one of the first things Obama did when he was inaugurated, uh, he went for a dinner with <laughs> David Brooks at George Will's house, uh, uh, Carl what's his name, Krauthammer was there. Right. I mean, three or four of the right, mm -hmm. right, right of the right mm -hmm. uh, columnists, and apparently there to, for them to explain the conservative agenda, and I think for him to say how bipartisan he planned to be. And it was from that day on, his, his economics were a disaster, I think. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a funny contrast between Biden and Obama, because Obama was genuinely a man of ideas as president. But those ideas were often quite bad and included things like it was really important to reach out to conservatives, to bring them on board, to try and heal the divide. And of course, you know, we saw eight years of what he got for that. It, it was a bad idea and it was bad politics. Whereas Joe Biden has always been someone who has not tried to distinguish himself from the Democratic Party, uh, who has identified himself with whatever the Democratic Party thinks at a given moment, um, has very little kind of independent course to his politics. 
Um, but as a result, as the, the common sense of the Democratic Party has, I think, actually learned something from the Obama years and from the debacle of, of trying to collaborate with the Republicans. Um, I, I think the result of that is that uh, the Biden administration realizes that there, there's nothing to be gained from trying to throw the Republicans a bone by like making the relief bill 30% tax cuts as, as Obama's stimulus bill was, for example, um, as, a, you know, as a way to try and bring the Republicans on board. I think I would differ just a little bit in that if, if Obama got elected now, I think he would probably do exactly mm. what Biden's doing, because I don't think it's so much uh, the difference between who Biden and Obama is. And I'm not saying there isn't, but it's that both of them are really at the service of the financial sector. Mm. Uh, you know, Obama was groomed by finance and they poured money into his campaign and he did you know, more or less, he hired, you know, Summers and Rubin and these guys, he hired Wall Street to run his shop. And it's kind of what finance wanted. Uh, I think what's changed is the elites. The, what, what finance wants has changed. Uh, and even if Larry Summers came out this way, uh, he's, he doesn't represent the majority of, of, of what corporate America wants, because the majority really seem to be on board with this. So what is that all about? Yeah, there's no question about that. There's no question that uh, without the change in the amount of resistance to large-scale macroeconomic stimulus um, that you find among elites, that neither the increased strength of progressives within the party nor the kind of reevaluation of bipartisanship among the Democrats would really make a difference. I think that's absolutely true. Um, and that, and so that's that's really the nub of it. That's that's the crucial issue: is why has big capital decided? that this kind of large-scale spending um, that's not going to tax cuts by and large, right? That's going to um, state and local municipal aid. That's going to an expansion of the child tax credit. That's going to like pension fund bailouts, you know, all of these things that you were listing in the intro. Um, and I think, I think there's a couple things there. First, I think the experience of the last 10 years of extremely expansionary monetary policy, you know, um, things like quantitative easing, et cetera, um, in 10 years, that has not brought on a whiff of the kind of inflation that people like uh, George F. Will were, you know, forecasting with doom and gloom as soon as Obama began talking about stimulus spending, right? Um, a, a, an entire decade of policy has proven them wrong. And, and it also has to be said that when Trump came to office and told Jay Powell to keep the money faucet going, um, a lot of Democrats started to say, oh, he's risking inflation, he's running the economy too hot, right? And they were proven wrong as well, right? Uh, running the economy hot has not so far produced any of the kind of negative consequences that both Democrats and Republicans had been predicting. So I, I think there's just a brute empirical fact there. Um, I, I think it's absolutely right that without the change in the elite stance towards macroeconomic stimulus, uh, neither of the first two factors that I mentioned would have been able to make much of a difference. Um, neither the, the new strength of progressives within the Democratic Party, nor the kind of learning process the Democrats have undergone uh, in terms of their relationship to the Republican Party. Um, because if big capital were leaning on them uh, to say no more money, uh, I, I don't think either of them would be able to resist it. But part of what's happened is that we've had a decade at this point of extremely expansionary monetary policy. The Federal Reserve has kept rates very low, had quantitative easing. Um, 
And none of it has produced even a whiff of the kind of inflation that people like George Will were warning about as soon as Obama began talking about stimulus spending in 2008, 2009. Um, so, you know, basically, if you talk to any conservative economist, Larry Kudlow, any number of these people who served in the Trump administration, they would have been, you know, they would have said, all of this stimulus money is going to bring inflation. It's going to be Jimmy Carter part two. Um, it's going to be absolutely horrible. Um, none of that happened. Then when Trump came into office and told Jay Powell to keep rates low, because, you know, Trump may not know many things, but one thing he knows is that low unemployment is good for him. Um, a lot of Democrats were starting to say, oh, they're running the economy too hot. They're risking inflation. This is kind of manipulating the economy. Um, and yet it didn't produce any of those negative results. You know, Trump presided over very strong job growth. So both Democrats and Republicans were wrong uh, in, in their predictions of inflation as a result of expansionary policy. Um, and so the result of that has been that among, you know, financial planners at Goldman Sachs, there's not a lot of worry about inflation. It just doesn't seem like a very credible uh, 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 danger on the horizon. And so because of that, combined with the, the economic damage that's obviously been inflicted by the pandemic, there's just not a lot of resistance to big, uh, bold spending proposals. Um, so that's, that's one side of it, is just the experience of the last decade and the, the, the way that you know, very, very pro-expansionary policy has not generated any of the negative consequences that lots of people were predicting. I mean, I think one of the, one of the reasons the Republicans did, you know, more or less supported the previous package, uh, but did not like this package. Is so much of the previous package supported the stock market, uh, and and this one, as you said, almost almost or maybe all of it's actually going to uh, you know ordinary people spending or cities and, and states and so on, which to the, to a large extent supports people's services. But even there, uh, the David Brooks of this world, uh, the Goldman Sachs of this world, they're okay with that. Uh, they don't mind. Uh, uh, the, even I, I've seen heard interviews on Bloomberg Radio with some of these finance people. They don't even mind if they have to pay a little more taxes. <laughs> uh, so what 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 is driving them? Well, part of it is that they've had it so good for so long that uh, you know the if, if if it's time for them to to tell to tighten their belts, um, they have a lot of notches left at this point before they really start to feel it because they they've just been ruling the roost for forty years. But the the other part of that that's uh, you know uh, or the other side of this that I think is is a little more sobering for the left is that in the nineteen seventies, you know, the unionization rate was twice as high as it is today. Um, th there was a lot more. Uh, working class struggle going on, you know, strike rates were much, much higher. And what that meant was that workers were much more successful in claiming a piece of the pie for themselves, right? Um, and when the economy grew, workers would say, we're going to get a piece of that growth. Now, deunionization, the, the, the crushing of working class organizations since then has meant that things that are going to pump up the economy and make the economy grow it's much, much less likely that workers are going to be able to grab a piece of that as things go on. And so what that means is if part of that, part of that growth gets taxed off and redistributed to some poor people, that's okay, right? Um, they can handle that. But workers are not powerful enough to make sure that, you know, every year that the economy is growing, they're getting a piece of that. Right. Um, and, and what that means is that policies then that are pro growth don't pose the same risk. In the, in, and so to understand this, you really have to go back to the 1970s when this dilemma 
was before the ruling class in its in its fiercest term when in, inflation was a really big problem under the Jimmy Carter administration. And inflation, you know, is when prices are rising. Um, and you would get these what were called wage price spirals, where wages would go up, and in response, businesses would raise prices. In response, workers demand more wages so they can buy things at the higher prices, etc. You get these inflationary spirals. And when Jimmy Carter appointed Paul Volcker to head the Federal Reserve, Volcker was very clear. The way that you stop this is by crushing the wage side of it, right? You stop workers from being able to demand more wages. And so that's what the Volcker shock, the, the spike in interest rates that doomed Jimmy Carter's presidency more than anything else, that's what that was all about, right? Raising interest rates up, raising unemployment, putting people out of work and, ma and making it so that workers aren't in a position to grab a hold of that growth, that they're not in a position to try and react to any price increases with wage demands of their own, right? Um, and so, so in the 70s, the idea was we, we have to crush inflation and to crush inflation, we have to crush workers' strength, right? Volcker was, you, you can read the, the, um, you know, the, the minutes of Federal Reserve meetings and Volcker is just totally explicit about this. Um, so that's been accomplished. Right. Uh, unions ha have been ground down outside of the public sector. They're, they're a shadow of their former uh, strength. And so. Well, you got to you got to add a big piece to that, which is, uh, I think, because of the digital revolution, globalization went on to steroids and the ability to play Chinese and other workers, low wage workers off against American workers, create a, a structural change that made it almost impossible without serious militancy and unionization to raise wages inside the US. And so they've, they've, they realize now that, you know, if, if, if anything, I think there's even sections of the corporate elite that understand the minimum wage should go up because, you know, if this gets too extreme and, and we're already maybe at a point where it's too extreme, uh, they're not gonna have a heck of a consumer market to work with here. Uh, so the, uh, the issue of purchasing power is an issue for them. Uh, they don't want it to go out of, out of control. Uh, but there's a section, I think what the Republicans are really afraid of. I mean, one, the Republicans oppose this package, one, because they just have to, because it's a Democratic Party package, and they just have to find some way to oppose it. And talking about debt is the only way they can, or the inefficiency of how it's being spent, but who cares about that? Um, but but the real thing I think the Republicans are, are more seriously worried about, and, and, and this is where they represent a section of, of big business, is, is the uh, discipline of the working class, especially in, in situations where the stimulus payments are more than people were making when they were working. Um, and the, inside the Democratic Party, you had conservative sectors that beat, beat this stimulus plan down in terms of how much was going to be paid in unemployment to make sure it wasn't because they care about the deficit. Uh, like, like ask any of them the question, why did you lower the unemployment payments? Why did you have to you know, make any of these payments smaller? And they can't honestly claim it has anything to do with deficit. It's about the disciplining of the working class. They don't want people to get used to living at that wage level, which is ridiculous because it's, it's not a living wage level even at that point. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting mix of politics right now. Uh, the, the, there, there are some voices coming forward more than there were a few months ago 
starting the austerity drums, um, do you think that gets stronger or, or, or does this carry on? Like the next big battle is going to be, is there going to be a big infrastructure plan with uh, another two or three trillion dollars of spending? Yeah, so I, I think the forces of austerity are are really on the defensive right now. Like I was just like seeing what like Marco Rubio was saying about this bill and his line of attack is like they're giving stimulus patients to pri- or stimulus uh, uh, payments to prisoners, right? Which is like such a pathetic line of attack. Like, hey, the government's doing something really good for you, but it's doing something really good for someone you don't like either. So you should oppose that. Like, it's just not going to sway anybody, you know? No one is going to turn against the bill because like, oh, prisoners are getting it. Oh my God. You know, like when people are getting checks from the government that are helping them, you're not, that, that's not going to be enough to turn people against it. Um, and so it, it's telling that it's like, you know, the Republicans can't come out right now and just say, we need to discipline the working class. We need to, we all need to tighten our belts right now. You know, that's their, that's their kind of preferred rhetoric. They can't say that. Um, And so, so yeah. And I think, I think that's part of a broader trend in uh, the advanced capitalist world. Like if you look at Britain right now, the Tories are not pursuing an austerian strategy. Um, They're spending, you know? So I think, I, I think the shape of conservatism um, is changing a little bit in the in the current conjuncture, and they can't just come out straight for like um, you know deflationary austerity politics. That that's just that's, that's such a political dead end for them right now. So instead, we see them fight around the edges of that. And I think in terms of the infrastructure bill, I think there's going to be huge fights around the infrastructure bill, but they're not going to be fights that are mainly about like how big the bill is, how much spending it is, how it's paid for. It's going to be fights about like things like the Green New Deal and how much the infrastructure bill is actually oriented at solving these huge problems of ecological destruction and how much it's just a giveaway to construction companies. You know, that's that's what the fight is going to be, not over like the size of the bill itself. That, that would be my prediction. I, I think there's another part to this, why why the elites are, seem so in support of this bill. Um, I think a lot of them, especially in, in New York and the financial sector and, and in the tech sector, other areas, um, maybe less so in fossil, certainly less so in fossil fuel and arms. But I think they got scared by this January 6th events. I think they got scared by what this Trump movement was turning into. Um, I don't think they want fascist crazies running the country. Uh, they want they don't mind a little bit of fascism, but it shouldn't be crazy fascism. You know, it has to be this more what slow-moving, supposedly reasonable. Uh, you know, what I think the reason I call that a kind of fascism is because the way Roosevelt talked about fascism is a sector of the corporate elites get control of the state, and you you more or less have that now with finance, really having the dominant role in the state. But I think the a lot of the a lot of the pow- powerful elites really don't want to see the Trumpian hordes uh, back in power again, and and they'll get what they want because Biden is not threatening structural change, and as long as they're not afraid of inflation, well then everybody thinks that okay, well there's another way to get at this piggy bank. So what does this mean for people that have uh, you write for Jacobin? It's a socialist magazine. What does it mean for people with a socialist objective when you have the elites, many of them, very much on the side of a kind of very expansionary stimulus spending, you know, all of a sudden every, you know, Goldman Sachs or Keynesian. 
Yeah, I think there's two things. First, I think it's really important that the left not over-exaggerate its strength in, and take credit for, like, why this bill is happening. And and the reason for that is, you know, obviously it's I, I think it's false, but I also think we are likely to face some significant defeats over the next few months. Um, the PRO Act, you know, the, the uh, act in that would make things make unionization so much easier is almost certainly going to die in the senate um it passed the house but it's almost certainly going to die in the senate we'll probably be defeated there uh, we saw the defeats on the minimum wage we saw the defeats on you know the, the absurd debate of over 1400 versus two thousand dollar checks and the ridiculous line in the sand that some democrats seem to be drawing we saw the the defeat over um, the extension of the the super dole, the expanded unemployment insurance that you were talking about. So I think if, if, if the left goes forward thinking, you know, we really rule the roost right now and the Biden administration is implementing our policy, I think we're, we're likely to be very shocked and disoriented with the likely direction of policy over the next uh, next few months, next six months, let's say. Mm. At the same time, I think there's a more optimistic part of the puzzle. And I think that is that I think this bill actually sets up some really productive, positive fights for the American left over the near and the, the medium term future, let's say. For example, the child tax credit in this bill, which is, uh, is really significant in that it is uh, unconditional cash aid to even the poorest Americans, which for 30 years, the Democrats have been running away from as a policy and demanding that people work whatever demeaning, abusive job they can possibly find, on, you know, regardless of what dependents they're taking care of um, in order to qualify for any cash aid. Um, the fact that, that that whole kind of ethos has been abandoned, um, at least temporarily, sets the left up for a really good fight to make that policy permanent. And, and do, you think, do you think that's the influence of Sanders and, and, and his allies? Um, yes, I think that's part of it. I mean, I think there, there have been kind of progressives who've been proposing precisely this kind of bill for a long time. And I think the fact that Sanders is now chair of the Senate Budget Committee, that he was part of these negotiations, I think that's absolutely uh, part of, of, of why this happened. Um, and I think that the, the fight to make that permanent is as good of a fight as the American left could want. You know, working class Americans are going to be getting checks from the government uh, you know, to help them pay for their kids for the next year. And then if the Republicans get their way, those checks are going to go away. That's a fight. That's such a good fight for the left to identify itself with the cause of the working class, with the interests of the working class. It's a good off-ramp from these kind of totally unproductive culture wars, you know, where the left kind of sides itself with various, you know, trends in elite journalistic opinion, that kind of thing. And to instead identify itself very simply with the interests of, of American workers. Um, and I, I, it's a fight in which the, the conservatives will be starting off on the back foot, right? Because people are already getting these, these credits. And it's a lot harder to take something away from people than it is to not give it to them in the first place. So, so I'm really excited about the potential of that fight for, for socialists in the United States for rebuilding a, you know, a left that fights on class terms and that sees its job as, as advancing the interests of the American working class and, and that you know sees part of its job as getting the working class involved in politics as the working class, right? Um, so, so I think there's the, the fights to kind of make those kind of things permanent. Fights for to, to keep 
the expanded unemployment insurance and to move towards an actual national unemployment insurance system rather than 50 state ramshackle services that you know are always on the verge of collapse when they're needed most. Um, these kind of fights are great fights for the left. And I don't think uh, Biden meant to set them up like that, but I think they're ones that, that can really play to our advantage if we see the terrain and see that we're not shaping things now, but that we can play a really important role in coalescing a left fight for, uh, for an actual universal welfare state in the U.S. Hmm. Uh, I think there's a, just to add to what you're saying, a couple of dangers one, I don't think this can go on forever, this deficit spending. Um, and the, the, when the pandemic's over, um, there is going to be a push uh, for higher wages. Uh, and the economy's going to come back. There'll be a more demand for labor. Um, the need, the sort of instinct, and, and to a large extent, very legitimate, of workers not to get undercut by cheap labor abroad, which was part of what supported a plank that supported Trump. Uh, the, the, the sort of TPP free traders are going to come back to the fore in the Democratic Party. They may want to even get that deal back again. Uh, there's going to, there will reach a point where the elites aren't going to be so happy with especially any kind of direct payment. They're, they're never going to mind support for the stock markets. Uh, but they reach a point where they're going to say, well, you know what, labor's getting a little too expensive right now. And they got a little confident with this social safety net. You know, we had decades of disciplining the working class where they, could get, they were scared of losing their job. And right now with all this stimulus money, you know, they're not going to be quite so scared. And they're going to be more likely to say, oh, well, I quit. I'm going to go get another job. Or they're going to say, I'm going to get a union. So I think the mood's going to change here. Uh, and then the second thing is the, the social base for fascism, for far-right politics. It's there. It's very objective. And it's not just about Trump by any means. You know, it comes out of both the economics of the urban and rural split. And, and the uh, extent to which the big cities have gained and, and so much of rural America has not, both whether it's working class or, or farmers or small business or whatever. And as, then again, as fossil fuel economy gets phased down, that's going to affect some of these rural states very seriously. And I, I was a little surprised in this package that there wasn't a promise to fossil fuel workers I, mean, I, I don't understand this. It just seems such a no-brainer that this Biden administration, if they're serious about climate and they're going to throw money around, tell every fossil fuel worker you're not going to lose your wages. Even if you lose your job, you're not losing your wages. If you go put, if you start making windmills and it pays five bucks an hour less than you were making doing coal, then we'll make up your five bucks for ten years. Or I mean, you know, if you're going to throw money around, then start throwing money around for what, you know, what people have called a just transition for fossil fuel workers. And I haven't heard that in, the, in this package unless I missed something. Um, and the, the fact that 74 million people vote for Trump, who's a maniac, who, who screwed up the pandemic. Um, but like I say, it, this starts, you know, Reagan had a landslide with, with, with very similar policies as, as Trump. You look at the Reagan campaign and the Trump campaign, and it's hard to tell the difference. It's just that uh, 
you know, Re Reagan smiled and Trump gets angry, but not a hell of a lot of difference. Um, and, and so I think the left and progressives really have to t think about how to organize, how to communicate uh, with the rural working class and, and working families outside the big cities uh, and, and, and states that vote Republican. Um, and, 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 and the advantage the left has in doing that is the left can talk to Republicans without defending corporate Democrats. And that gives them a kind of credibility. If you try to go in those areas and defend the, the Obama administration, nobody will listen to you. But much of the rural right critique of the Obama administration is quite legitimate, or the Clinton administration, and the left can agree with that, but then can say, okay, but you know, just another set of pro-corporate policies dressed up as uh, you know, pro-worker and go look what the policies really are. Anyway, I don't think we, we pay enough attention on the left to this issue of how to get into the rural areas. I know some people are doing it, uh, but, but I know like in the media sphere I operate in, uh, you know, the odd person shows up because they see me on YouTube or this or that. But by and large, we're talking to uh, urban progressive populations. And it, it, in some ways, I think there's almost nothing more critical than targeting a few states and, and, and really working at uh, trying to win over the working class and, and to a, you know, neither a corporate Democrat or a Republican position, whether it means tactically you vote Democrat at some point, okay, but you explain, do so without illusions. I don't know, what's your thinking on it? Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's part of why I'm so excited about the possibilities that like the fight to make the child tax credit permanent present is because I think that's like the perfect issue for leftists to be going, you know, to, to be talking to people that they're not usually talking to. And, and it, it provides a grounds to do so you're getting these checks from the government, they're making your lives better. You know, like we the, the socialist left is the force that wants the government to keep giving you those checks, right? Um, we are the ones who are fighting for that. I think that provides just a very simple way for uh, a simple basis for campaigning in areas that otherwise it might be hard for the left to, to, to pick out the issues that it wants to fight on. I think this is exactly the kind of issue that that makes a, a very direct, honest, simple appeal uh, to those kind of areas possible. Um, but I, I totally agree that it's absolutely necessary. I mean, the, the just the math of the Senate Right. Um, and and the, the, the math of America's, you know, horrible kind of system of representation makes it clear that, like, if if the left can't do anything in rural areas, there's not going to be leftist policy on a national level. You know, it's, it's not going to be possible. Well, what, what was accomplished in Georgia is pretty good. Um, and if, if the left could pick a small state because it doesn't require as much money in a tiny state. And, you know, one or two of these small states and get some actual progressives, real progressives, to do what happened in Georgia in some small states, you could have an enormous leverage with, uh, you know, just an extra two or three senators that were, um, you know, more Sanders-esque. Yeah. Yeah. I just I was just seeing some polling that like among Republicans, support for Biden's stimulus bill is highly class stratified. Uh, working class Republicans support it strongly. Upper class Republicans hate it. You know, um, that is that that's an opportunity. 
right there for progressives, right, who want to run on, on progressive economic policies, who want to run on redistribution to, to split those voters away from the Republican coalition. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fast. It's going to be difficult. There are going to be losses. But there's, I just think it's unquestionable that it's absolutely necessary if we want a, a progressive future in American politics and not one where this insane right wing is running rampant. Um, because, you know, as, as you said, uh, the Republicans have in some ways slipped the corporate leash. Um, they are they are not doing what the Bank of America wants. And uh, but they are doing what most of the fossil, not all, but most of the fossil fuel wants. And 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 and, and, and certainly certain sections of the arms business uh, and so on. I, I think the other thing that's important is that the, the, the while the elites, when I said don't like the idea of that fascist hordes coming back to the White House, they don't want them to go away. It's an important leverage for them. Uh, they, you know, they like the fact there's 74, 75 million people out there that will vote for you know, a Trump. Uh, they just want someone who's not nuts as Trump as an alternative out there. So if they ever have to really pull things back again, you know, it could be a Rubio or somebody like that who's, who's a little more uh, of their lapdog, but maybe can play to that crowd. Um, so again, it speaks to this issue of organizing in, in these states. And I would say, again, tactically pick a few small states to really try to knock off some Republican senators. And then we have to, I think, have to understand that it's not just going to be about checks and it's not just going to be about economics. Uh, the culture war, uh, you know, I'm reading in the papers now that the Republicans aren't worried about all the stimulus payments because they think the culture stuff will, will quote, Trump the uh, the money anyway, because they're going to say, well, it's they're just giving you back your money anyway, um, which and the answer would be, of, well, it's better than you taking our money and giving it to Wall Street. But, <laughs> but the cultural side of this, uh, you know, it's partly the, the, the uh, legacy of, of racist culture. You know, uh, you know, the, the idea of, uh, it always hit me that poor farmers fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War. And, you know, what did they fight for? They fought for, uh, at least I'm white. I mean, that's about all you could say that they would gain from a Confederate victory, but it was enough to die for. So that, that idea that at least I'm white was, you know, a check ain't going to fix it if you're willing to die for that. Now, we're not back in slave society, but, you know, the, the brains, the, the ways on the brains of the living like a nightmare, right? The, the, uh, we, I don't think we understand that we being us urban lefties understand that part of the American psyche well enough. You know, the religious, it used to be in these religious areas, they were left. There's no reason that, you know, if, you know it's actually the abortion issue that really is split uh, religious people from the left, because it used to be a lot of the populist movements in the late, you know, 19th century and early 20th century were quite religious. Um, uh, the social, you know, I'm in Toronto right now. I go back and forth between U.S. and Canada. In Toronto, and the uh, rebellion here uh, were religious socialists, Christian socialists that led a rebellion against the elites here in the, I guess, late 1800s. Um, but I don't think we have, have yet to figure out how to deal with this abortion question and talk to religious people where this is 
it's a litmus test for them. And we may not like it, but it is. Um, and then there's, there's other, you know, key issues there that, that I don't, I don't know, even the way, uh, the, the hatred for government, uh, you know, Reagan's thing, it really played to people. Uh, you know, I lived in Baltimore for nine years and people hate the police, but they don't hit the rich people of Baltimore. You know, the elites of Baltimore aren't the enemy. It's the police that are the enemy. And, you know, you know, I would say, well, the police are just a buffer between people that own stuff and people that don't. And if you don't get at the ownership side of this, I'm not saying you can't have a little bit of reform of the police, but you won't change the basic role that the police are there to enforce laws that perpetuate poverty if you don't deal with that. Uh, so I, we have to figure out how to how to have these kinds of conversations. Uh, I'm, you know, for me, I'm trying to, going to try to do it through the media side. But here it's a problem of distribution because how do I get anybody to even know it's there? So a lot of it is you got to, you know, once COVID's over, you got to get out there and like knock on doors and this sort of stuff. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that's one thing that's made me very hopeful about the kind of electoralist turn on the American left is you can't do electoral politics without getting out there and knocking on doors and talking to people. And that's such an important thing for the left to be doing. And I think as, as important as, for example, the anti-war movement was, you know, the movement against the Iraq war, that wasn't what the anti-Iraq war movement was doing. It wasn't just going through neighborhoods, knocking on doors and talking to people by and large, you know? Um, so I, I'm really happy to see that all over the country, um, you know, like DSA chapters and things like that are just organizing, going out and talking to people, trying to win them to politics. Because I think, you know, the, the problems you're, you're talking about are going to be problems that the, the solutions to which are going to be only found in practice, you know, we're only going to we're going to go out and we're going to try and talk to people and we're going to fail and we're going to figure out how to do it better. That's the only way we're going to find those those kind of solutions. And so the fact that, you know, uh, so much of the left is like, look, let's hey, let's go run someone. Right. Let's run someone for city council here. Let's see what happens. I think that's that can only be a positive development in, in uh, our, our quest to address these, you know, these much longer term issues of, of culture and politics in the U.S. and the kind of splits um, that have really worked to the detriment of the left. Uh, th just before we conclude, I, I don't think we'd have a conversation about the Biden administration and the elites and all that without talking about in spite of this sort of change of mood on stimulus spending and deficit and all the rest, there hasn't been much of a change on foreign policy issues. The Biden administration seems to be more or less the Obama foreign policy. Um, I, we have, I just posted an article, uh, an interview I did with uh, Chaz Freeman, who says the Biden policy on China is simply a, a more polite Trump. Uh, the, uh, there's no real, uh, it doesn't sound like any kind of attempt to reduce the uh, military budget and so on. So this isn't like this administration has taken on some magically new progressive character. It's what we said earlier. It's the elites are, are uh, going to benefit from this, you know, what are progressive policies? No doubt. These are progressive reforms. And some of them are, like you said, are important ones. But it's not really changing their approach to foreign policy. And right now, the only good thing will be if they get back into the Iran agreement. And even that's they're they're pissing around, uh, and and China and on China they're they're no less vociferous than Trump has been, except in language a little less. That's all. 
Yeah, I think I, I think the Biden administration in some ways has really benefited from the longer term marginalization of foreign policy in American politics. You know, like the last time an election was really fought on foreign policy was 2004. Right. Um, and if, if you survey Americans, the number who say foreign policy is one of their most important issues. has gone way, way down. You know, if you look uh, uh, more longer term at the 20th century. And so there's a way in which I think the Biden administration has been able to get away so far with deferring to the old and, and empowering the old foreign policy establishment of, of Obama and, and, and Clinton to a, to a lesser extent, um, because there's just not that much attention on it, you know? And that's, that's, that's the case for progressives. It's the case for the mainstream media, you know? Um, the, the, it, it's really shifted from attention in a way that I think has advantaged uh, the, the powers that be in those areas, right? The blob, as it's called, of, uh, of the, the foreign policy establishment. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, if you've been paying attention to it, though, it's just kind of uh, uh, item after item of news of how little is going to change, actually. Well, if, if they do go back into the Iran nuclear agreement, that's a big deal. And if nothing else happens, no other big wars, uh, then I would say, well, that's a plus for them to at least they did that. Because I, I, when Obama got elected, that was my only hope for that administration, that they would do the Iran. He'd be rational in Iran. And Biden's always been more or less rational about Iran. So I'm hopeful on that. Uh, but they just with the stimulus, right? That's that is once again, something that is firmly within the umbrella of elite opinion on, on foreign policy, right? The, the Iran deal is what the most sensible American elites want. Yeah, but the most they're not. Well, what was it just the other yesterday something? Uh, what was it, a bipartisan letter on Iran of, was it 40, 50 members of Congress or more uh, saying that they should reopen the negotiations, which means they're going to try to go way beyond the nuclear and include uh, ballistic non-nuclear ballistic missiles, which Iran has every right to have. Um, and Iran will never agree, and it will scuttle the agreement. And certainly this is what Israel and Saudi Arabia want. So... This, this, this ain't so unified on that one. Uh, it will take some real push and fighting, and I don't know whether Blinken's the guy that's going to do it, but I guess we'll see. Uh, the other thing, and I, I think I already said to end with, so I'm going to end with the en one other ending, ending thing, because this one really is the end. The nuclear weapons policy. We, left doesn't talk about it hardly at all. Uh, they're going to have a massive new uh, expenditure that Obama initiated. Now, apparently, Biden was against it. This guy, I think the guy's name's Kaplan that wrote a book on uh, American nuclear war strategy. And according to him, when Obama uh, in, committed to this trillion dollars over 30 years for nuclear weapons, that Biden wasn't, was in disagreement with it. Um, but... I don't know if that's true, and I don't know whether it means anything, because so far there's certainly not been a pipsqueak out of the administration that they're going to cut back on a massive new expenditure in nuclear weapons. And because of that, of course, it's now the Chinese military-industrial complex is jumping in on it, and the Chinese state isn't going to you know, get so out-nuked. And the Russians have already committed their own trillion dollars. So we're back into a nuclear arms race. And the, uh, the danger of that is, you know, it's imminent. Um, you know, most of the people that understand this stuff, they don't think if there's an accident that's misread as war and starts a war, it's, it's when. I mean, we're looking at, 
you know, almost certain, according to people like Daniel Ellsberg, but also lots of uh, retired generals and other people, uh, the, you know, this, the more you've got, the higher the, the risk of accident. And I don't think the left talks about it very much. Uh, and I know it because there's like just, oh, you've got climate and you've got poverty and you've got this and you've got that, you know. My, 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 my grandmother used to have this thing that when somebody was going on and on about how terrible things were, she'd go, oh, yeah, and then the baby died. And it would, she'd call this a then the baby died story. And nuclear weapons seems like just one too many things to think about. But Jesus, it's, it is in fact the one thing that could make everything else quite irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those parts of American uh, policy that is kind of just not subject to contestation in official politics. You know, um, there's no one who's going to say boo about it. Maybe, you know, maybe Bernie will raise it. Um, but uh, other than that, it's something that, that just is not, uh, it's, uh, it's rude to, to bring it up as an issue to be actually debated. It's crazy. It's just crazy. We're going to, you know, I'm working with Daniel Ellsberg on a documentary film series based on his book, Doomsday Machine. And I, I was just as much guilty of putting this on a back burner as anybody else until I started talking to Ellsberg and read his book. I really encourage people to read that Doomsday book. It's brilliantly written and will scare the shit out of you. Uh, the, uh, one of the things we're hoping to do is get a congressional hearing on nuclear war strategy and get Ellsberg invited to speak there. So we'll see. Anyway, thanks very much, Paul. Let's, let's keep having these conversations. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage. Mm -hmm.